This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Super excited to have a good friend, good buddy back on the show. Uh, you know her as the New York Times bestselling author of Turns of Endearment. It's uh, author Donna Andrews. We're going to talk to Donna a little bit about her uh, latest book, The Falcon Always Wings Twice. And uh, it's part of the uh, Meg Langslow's mystery series. So uh, we'll get all the tidbits, all the scoop without giving away the whole story. So it's going to be a a great, entertaining show with uh, one of the best out there. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Looking for a dental treat that does more for your dog? Daily Dose is a two-in-one chew that pairs a daily dental scrub with powerful supplements to help with the biggest health concerns facing our dogs. Daily Dose was developed by vets to be simple to use and super effective. Plus, dogs love the taste. Available for joint, skin, heart health, or calming. Daily Dose, your pet's daily dose of awesome. Visit yourpetsdailydose.com to save $3 on your first bag with promo code PETLIFE. That's yourpetsdailydose.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining me now is New York Times bestselling author Donna Andrews. Donna, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's great, great, and I'm so glad that, that I got your ping from the publicist saying, hey, Donna's got a new one out. You want her? I'm like, yes, when, now, let's do it. And the latest book's called uh, The Falcon Always Wings Twice. Ha, ah, love it. Love the title. So tell us a little bit about this part of the uh, long-running mystery series that you have, the Meg Lanslow mystery series. So tell us a little bit about this book and how it fits into the series. Okay. Well, Meg is uh, an ornamental blacksmith. But we don't see much blacksmithing normally in the books, because normally she's out solving mysteries. Usually when one of her friends or family members is endangered or suspected of something, she gets into it up to her eyeballs. But this time, and my editor loves blacksmithing, I think he may have even taken lessons at one point, so he was thrilled this time that I set the latest book at a Renaissance fair, where my heroine Meg is doing some blacksmithing which is kind of a lot of fun. I'm looking for ways to involve the blacksmithing war. And I always have to have a bird connection to the books. That dates from the first book in this series when I called up a friend to help me think of a title for the first book. And the friend said, because she knew I was working on several projects, and she said, which one is their mystery with the peacocks? And I thought, okay, murder with peacocks. So ever since then, because publishers like a theme, I have to come up with preferably a bad pun involving a bird. (laughs) And that becomes the title of the latest book. And so this time, since we're at a Renaissance fair, there are falcons being demonstrated. And I decided to to bring the falcons in in a big way. And falcons are a lot of fun. I actually tried to go out. I found someone who gives private lessons in falconry, but they were on vacation or something. You know, They had shut down for the winter when I was researching the book. So I didn't get to hold a falcon on my wrist. But I may do it anyway, even though I finished the book, because that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and my editor always likes to make sure also that the, the bird of the title has some involvement in the mystery, whether the, bird is, whether the bird is not usually a suspect, 
but whether the bird is involved in the mystery in some fashion, I, I like to to get the bird in up to its the tip of its beak in the mystery of the the day. The big thing that also was going on at this Renaissance Fair is that my my heroine's husband, who was an actor, has organized kind of an impromptu entertainment. He's gotten together a small troupe of actors, and they kind of act out a an improvisational game where they're all plotting against each other to try to take over the kingdom when good Queen Cordelia, which is my heroine's grandmother, the owner of the fair, when good Queen Cordelia uh, passes on her kingdom, they want to be the one who takes it over. So they're all having a lot of fun going around. Uh, It's kind of like the cross between Game of Thrones and a soap opera to watch, and it's it's all entertainment for the fairgoers. Just a little something. But of course, one of the actors, a really obnoxious person to have around, and I don't usually manage to I don't usually manage to dispatch my prey early in the book. It usually takes me a while to get around to the point where everyone's good and ready to see the victim knocked off. Uh, <laughs> if you can't see who's going to get it coming, I haven't done my job properly. <laughs> I don't kill nice people. I kill the most annoying person in the cast. But you can't just knock off annoying people. It still matters. <laughs> so we end up solving the murder anyway. Donna, that could be a theme for life. You can't just knock <laughs> off the annoying people. <laughs> Isn't it kind of like wish fulfillment? It's like, oh, he's so annoying. I shouldn't do anything but, ooh. We mystery writers have a motto, you know. If someone does us dirty, we don't get even. We smile and we kill them early in our next book. (laughs) Exactly. I've killed off people by proxy for friends who... They tell me about the people who are annoying them, and, and I, I give the name to someone annoying. Uh, I give their enemies annoying characteristics to one of my characters. I once had a friend who was downsized, and her boss didn't have to downsize her. It was kind of a traumatic experience. Her boss was named Alan something or other, and she said, you don't have to give him his last name. Just name a nasty character, Alan, and I'll know it's him. So I named the hyena. I had three hyenas, and I named the Winkin and Blinken and Alan. Oh, no. <laughs> Nod must have, you know. And she knew that hyena was her boss. We actually sometimes auction off characters, and I always ask people, you know, what we do by auction off characters, we have auctions at the mystery conventions or sometimes online, and we sell off the right to give your name to a character or one of your friends' names. And the money usually goes to a literacy charity or a library. And several times I've auctioned off characters, and people said, Ooh, make it a nasty character and name it after my former boss or my ex or whatever. <laughs> so, I was going to really ask you. I figured that would be a good way to get some side change, but I'm glad yeah. you're doing good No, we it, do it for you know? charity. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you get – yeah, so when you're sitting down to write this book, uh, The Falcon Always Wings Twice, do you think, okay, what bird should I put in there, and then how do I create the story around that? Or is it more of, I've got this story, here's, here's sort of the outline, now what kind of crazy uh, feathered friend can I put in here? It kind of depends on the book. In the case of The Falcon Always Wings Twice, I knew it was going to be set at a Renaissance fair, and falcons were... Where the I mean, the Falcons just said Renaissance Fair to me because okay. most of the time when I've gone to our local Renaissance Fairs, there's always a falconer demonstrating, and it just seemed appropriate. In other cases, like I knew I wanted to set a book on a cruise. I actually took a cruise, a really short cruise because I'd never done one before. I took a cruise, just one of those one of those things that it takes a day and a half to get out to Bermuda, and then you're there on Bermuda for 12 hours and then a day and a half coming back. But I wanted the cruise experience. But I was trying to think, what's a water bird that I can use 
and it, I go back and forth with my editor, and he goes back and forth with the marketing department until we come up with a title that has the bird of the title and also has some, preferably some connection with murder or something threatening. But terms of endearment just seem like the perfect, you know. And uh, I thought that was a good one. I've had We'll Always Have Parrots and <laughs> Die Like an Eagle. Uh, if there's a bird that I want to structure the plot around, I come up with a good title for that plot, for that bird and then try to make a plot that fits. If I have a plot I really want to use, I say, okay, and what bird angle can we use? At one point, I wanted to use, someone gave me a, a title. I was speaking at a charity event, one of those things where, you know, you, you sing for your supper and they give you a free supper and then mm -hmm. you have the satisfaction knowing you've helped earn money for a good cause. I think it was a breast cancer thing that a fellow writer, Marcia Talley, wrote me into doing because she's very big on that. And someone walked up to my table after I'd spoken and said, I have a title for you, Cockatiels at Seven. Ah. I liked it. And yeah. I thought, great, because I, I wanted to do a book that involved, involved the smuggling of endangered species. There are a lot of nasty people who smuggle you know, parrots and, and other decorative birds. Right, right. And I found out from a friend who'd done some research on it for her series that people who smuggle wildlife, they're the same people who smuggle drugs and guns and, and, and traffic humans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They've got the channels and they've got the nastiness. Birds are just a sideline for them. They, you know, they're bad people. And I thought, great, I'll have someone who is traffic, you know, smuggling in cockatiels. But I bet you can guess what happened, though. Nobody smuggles cockatiels. They're too cheap, and they breed too easily in captivity. Uh, but, I would have never known that uh, one. Well, no. A cockatiel, I mean, you know, every time you go into a pet store, you see cages full of cockatiels. Right. But then I found out about finch laundering. There are some, some very brightly colored decorative finches. Right, like Goldians and, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And they finch laundering, which is a real thing. They take a bird that it's an endangered species, and you can't sell it. You can't import it unless it was bred in captivity. So they have fake papers that show that these birds were bred in captivity, only they really were smuggled in from the wild. That's finch laundering. So I had my bad guys running a cockatiel farm, as a cover for a finch laundering operation. Oh my gosh. So, I have so, fun with my research. I, I that, well, that's, yeah, exactly. What's, that's what I was going to say. You know, If you look at it based on what we've been just talking about on the surface, like, okay, Donna puts out these fabulous mystery books, and all she has to have is a corny pun and slap a bird <laughs> in there, and she's ready to go. But there's that research. There's a lot of research that does go into these, right? Yeah, and mystery readers are very, they're very picky in a way. If you get your facts wrong, they will ding you on it. Yeah. And also, they're very interested in learning stuff. And I, one of the characters that's become a big character, my, my heroine's father, who's an avid bird watcher and gardener, and her grandfather, who is a, a famous animal welfare conservationist. Like he goes around the world rescuing endangered species and breaking up animal, animal smuggling operations, generally being a gadfly for the good. And I kind of have to have wildlife, bird, and, and animal information. I mean, Meg's grandfather is a lot of fun because he's always on some kick, rescuing some animal or fascinated by some animal. And I have fun with it, and the readers seem to like it too. For example, in one book, he's, the book I was writing, he was on about the fact that, did you know that praying mantises actually sometimes attack lizards and birds? Uh, I did not know praying that. Mantis. Yeah. I didn't know that, but I came across it in my research. 
and he might be, you know, in, in one book, he's studying the corvids, crows and ravens and, and magpies, and he's doing intelligence studies to see how intelligent birds really are. It's kind of hard to do an intelligence test for a bird because you have to figure out something they can do that doesn't involve opposable thumbs. A lot of people think that you know, crows and ravens and magpies and other others in that family, blue jays, for example, are a lot more intelligent than we give them credit for. It's kind of like dogs and cats. One of my friends told me that dogs aren't really more intelligent than cats. Dogs are very eager to take intelligence tests if their humans want them to, and cats just couldn't be bothered. <laughs> that's Which a, that, is why nobody really knows how intelligent cats are. That's right. And that's... crows and ravens and magpies, you know, it's hard to think of a test that, you know, they're also, they're fact. They're a little independent like cats, and it's hard to think of a test you can't, can do without opposable thumbs or even paws. But he's gung-ho on this whole studying the intelligence of magpies and crows and ravens and such. So I, I have fun with it. That, that's in the Christmas book that comes out in a couple of months called The Gift of the Magpie. Ah, uh, there you go. So with we'll the magpies in it, yeah. Definitely look forward to that. That'll be, that'll as be soon, around. As soon as, I think, yeah, as soon as I think of a title, I, I thought of a title called Gone Gull right after the book Gone Girl had come out, and I thought, oh, I have to have a plot. I have to figure out a plot to go with that. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily start with a plot or start with a pun. It starts with whatever piece grabs me, and I find the other pieces as they go on. Okay, so that's how you put yeah. the puzzle together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, with this book, with The uh, the Falcon Always Wings Twice, we know that the central characters are still in place. You know, Meg's still, still going to be there, and, and her husband and some of these characters. Other than this annoying guy that you kill off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are some of the, the uh, other characters we can uh, expect? Is there some new twist or something that we can, a uh, new, new person we can love or hate in the uh, in this particular book? Well, the, the relatively new person, she's only been around for a few books, Meg's grandmother has now become a central character. Because I like Meg's grandmother. She's feisty like Meg. Uh, I think she's the origin of Meg's uh, feistiness. And most of the other characters who are new for this book are actors, the various actors who are involved in the plot. So they're all struggling over, they're, they're all fighting for parts and trying to stab each other in the back to get better lines and generally doing the things. I was a drama major in undergraduate college and knew I loved being a backstage drama major. I loved watching it. I, I, I didn't quite have the flamboyant style to, to make it on stage, but I loved the backstage drama. So this is another chance to, to kind of have the backstage drama going on. So most of the new characters are actors and they're dramatic. <laughs> as actors tend to be. Absolutely, absolutely. There's also, of course, a falconer. We have to have a falconer to go along with the uh, the falcons. That's right, and you're right about that. And I, lo and I love the cover. You know, we've got a uh, the falcon on the cover with the little uh, jester oh, yeah. hat and the Renaissance flag flying behind. So that's brilliant there as well. So they we know. Good job on the covers. Yeah. So we know that the uh, Meg saves the day. We know all that. So we won't give away the whole, the whole story there. The in the twists and turns in this. So I, I just love the fact that you know, it, as you mentioned before, it, it's important to know your characters. And so when you talk about Greg uh, Meg's grandmother, that you mm -hmm. fell in love with her. This is just not a, a normal character as, as an author, as a writer. There are characters that you do create that you don't like and doesn't deserve to be in another uh, the next uh, installment. And there's some that either you fall in love with or, or your fans just won't let you kill them off. Yeah, I actually had a, I did a poll at one point about which 
care other than Meg. I didn't put Meg in the in the poll because I figured if she wasn't their favorite character, I would be upset. But I did a poll to see which character other than Meg people liked the most, and I think there were a dozen characters that got mentioned. I, I didn't have a list and you take it off. I said, which character other than Meg? I think her father got the most votes, which was kind of fun because he's loosely inspired by my own father. I tried to change every external about my dad. My father was a marine biologist. He was tall. It took a while before mom's cooking caught up with him, and he was skinny much of his life. He had a full head of hair. He was passionate about French culture and opera. Meg's dad is short and balding and plump, and he's passionate about mysteries and poison. And is a doctor, not a marine biologist. But all of our friends, when they read the first book, they recognized Dad because there was this core of passionate enthusiasm. Whatever he's he's doing, he's doing it two hundred percent. So it didn't matter he was, what he was. These are like polar opposites creating the character compared to your father. But people that knew your father knew exactly well, who you were talking about. Because the, the classic story about Dad, he was reading a biography of the French writer uh, Georges Sand. And he was always reading bits of it aloud to us. I should have read the book so I could say, yeah, 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 Dad, I read it already, remember? <laughs> but at Cut one time, we're all have, we're having dinner, and we're talking about something about school or, or the neighborhood or family stuff. And there's a tiny, a microsecond's pause in the conversation. And Dad says, so, speaking of George Sand... <laughs> which, of course, we hadn't been, but something we said reminded him of something she had said or done. And... When he's passionate about something, he goes all in. And Meg's dad is like that, too. Um, <laughs> Meg's mother is not based on my mother. When my mom was alive, I, I kept having to, to say, if you really want, she'll give you an affidavit to that effect. It's not my mother. But she, and she's, she's annoying. Many of Meg's family are annoying in ways, but they're annoying in endearing ways. And they basically love her, and they're basically good people. They're just doing good things in a really annoying way. They're, they're family. That's what we call family, Donna. <laughs> yeah. Her brother, who is not stupid, he's, her brother is feckless, but he's very bright. After having gone through law school and passed the bar exam on the first try, he has never practiced law because he, he discovered he has a genius for creating computer games, and he's now the head of a computer game company. It's dangerous because I, I bring a character on stage, and then I want to keep them around. Her grandfather appeared in one of the books, and, and now he's become a big character. Meg's father, the story for the first 10 or 12 books was that her father was an orphan. He'd been found in a basket in the library in Charlottesville. But I managed to figure out a way to actually find his father. And then when his grandfather took stage, grandfather decided to go looking for the grandmother, long-lost grandmother. It's kind of like having a very large repertory company, and I can't even find a big part for all of them every book. They have to take turns. Like, this is going to be a mother-centric book. There was one book in which there was a decorator show house going on, The Nightingale Before Christmas. Mm. And Mother being an avid decorator, that was her book. But then when we were having a ranch to round up feral emus, that was, that was Meg's dad getting involved and her grandfather. Uh, there actually are feral emus, by the way, in the mountains here in Virginia and in several places in California. Not wild emus, feral ones that escape wow. from emus and ostriches that escape from captivity and, and have managed to thrive. That's a scary thought. That is. I have a friend who lives down in, in the mountains of Virginia, and she says, yeah, it's kind of a weird experience when you're driving along in early morning and you see a, a couple of emus crossing the road in the fog. <laughs> and that image gave me a book. I was going to say, that's a perfect title for a book. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up calling it The Good, the Bad, and the Emus. There you go. Gotta love it. Yeah. 
All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, uh, but then we'll come back with uh, Donna Andrews and talk to her a little bit more about her latest book, The Falcon Always Wings Twice. And I also want to talk to you, Donna, about your uh, writing and writing style. So uh, everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. Uh, you're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Corpchuk, his coat is very thick. He's an Akita, German Shepherd, Lab, Husky Mix, Harold, the Border Collie Pit Mix. He has the most beautiful jet black coat. Stuart, my rat carrier, has fur now where he never had it before. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Dynavite will give them a beautiful, lustrous coat. It will make you smile. You get some Dynavite, how happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Continue our conversation with uh, New York Times bestselling author Donna Andrews. Now, Donna, when everybody picks up a copy of the book, The Falcon Always Wings Twice. Now, first of all, I had to had to make sure people realize this because I'm sure all your fans do, but this is the 27th? Mystery in the Meg Lanslow series? Is that correct? I think so. I have to go look at a list I keep to number them. It's been going on for a long time, but I try to write each book so that if you if you haven't read the whole series, you can try the latest book. Right. And then if you like them, you've got more fun ahead of you. It's kind of like if you meet someone, when you meet someone, do you actually go into their entire history from the day they were born on the first meeting? No, you meet them, and if you like them, you spend more time with them, and eventually you learn more about their history. Yeah. I like to think that I'd like to try to write the books so people can do that. I myself tend to read books series in order and then there's that oh can't find the the third book. This is driving me crazy. So I try to write it so that people aren't gonna have that much of a problem if they don't want to go back and find the earlier books or if there's one their library doesn't have. So uh Meg's right. life has changed a bit over the course of the books. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love your analogy on that. That's a perfect way to, to look at because the mystery series, you know, uh, your series and others that uh, obviously I've read and, and I've talked to the authors on, I know mostly they try to do that. And that, that's hard to do to make sure it's, it's fresh that, you know, if you're coming in on book, you know, five or 10 or 27, it doesn't matter. It's still fresh. It's new. But then I love your analogy about going back because you're absolutely right. When you meet somebody for the first time, God forbid they start, well, when I was in kindergarten, the garden, you know, <laughs> it's like okay. Well, my my time at the uh, the party with you is over. I want to know what you're doing now. Then, if I like <laughs> right. you, then maybe you can tell me what you did in kindergarten. So, I love how you. Yeah, put and that this together. this actually works. Sometimes people will write me and say, "Oh, I love such and such a character. You're going to bring him back?" And I go, "Well, but he was a suspect. I can't exactly bring him back, or not for a while. Or the people who haven't read that book and read the next book." Well, know that he couldn't possibly have been the killer because here he is in another book. That's it. That's it. And that's one of the, the questions I've got. You know, you're here. You are. You're, you're building these characters. You fall in love with them. You've got to keep them sorted because your fans are going to set you straight if you don't. You got 27 books and counting. We're, we're going to continue oh, yeah. on with the series as long as you're interested in Meg and the fans are interested in Meg. How do you, as a, a uh, as a writer and author, keep that in order? I mean, is it a massive Excel spreadsheet, or is it you're so entwined with these various characters, even the small characters, that you know exactly 
who was a villain in the past and who you killed off and, and who's the hero and the heroine. I wish I had started, if I'd known I was going to be doing the series for this long, 20 years ago when I started, I would have started making what they call a series Bible that has all that information. But what I do is I keep a copy of the Word document of all the books in a folder on my desk so that if I think, wait a minute, didn't she have a cousin named that before? I should look that up. One of these days when I have some free time, (laughs) I may go back and do a series Bible. But right now, I rely on my memory and going back and looking it up in previous books. That yeah. sometimes that sometimes has does me in. Uh, I remember one time I had Meg think in a book that Rob says something that shows he actually wasn't asleep in all of his classes in law school, her brother. And she thinks, well, it's pretty good for someone or another bother to take the bar exam. And several readers commented that, oops, according to a previous book, and they could cite it, <laughs> he had passed the bar exam. So I, I was stuck. I had made a mistake, and I managed to figure out a way to make it right. In another book, Rob again says something that shows he was awake during his uh, criminal procedures class, and Meg says, well, I guess that law school education was worth it after all. And he turns to her and says, yeah, I wish you'd stop telling people that I flunked the bar exam. <laughs> At brilliant. which point she says, no, I've never told people you flunked the bar exam. I did tell people I thought maybe you lied about taking it because since you knew once you graduated you never wanted to practice law, why bother taking the bar exam? Yeah, That's what I'd do if I, if I never wanted to practice law. I'd say, oh, yeah, I passed, and then move on with my life. And That's he looks great. at her and says, you know, when you put it that way, it almost sounds like a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to do the old – That's right. You got to do the old crawdad back out of that. Oh, yeah. Put something out there. So I love that. I love that. Yeah, because you know that's why I've always thought. I hope you uh, obviously have a backup drive for that that word document. Oh, yeah. Maybe print it out because you never know what's going to happen there. But that's the exciting thing. You know, you know, people think. Well, you know, I've had various fans talk about various mystery uh, series. And, you know, it's not a matter of just finding one or two good characters and, and letting it ride for as long as you can. I mean, you have to stay on top of it. You have to be fresh about it. you got to introduce some new and exciting characters. And, and like I said before, not kill off the ones that you got to be careful there, too. You can't kill off somebody you think, eh, nobody likes him anyway, and then somebody has an uproar about it. Well, I think one of the things that helps keep the series fresh for me writing it, and I hope for people reading it, is that Meg's friends and family are usually, they're usually up to some new thing that has seized them all, either individually or collectively. I like to think of it in terms of, of the books work well when I've got people who are involved in something that's kind of like a cult, by which I don't mean a, a religious cult, but a group of people doing something that they're passionate about that looks a little strange to the outside world, like growing and showing roses or participating in in a a renaissance fair, or a giant yard sale. Anything that that the characters get really, really fired up about, and so that there's humor in in their passionate enthusiasm, but also they're going to come into conflict, and some of them will tick off others and want to kill those others. (laughs) I I also like to say I test drive all my suspects. I live in horror, but I, I live aware of the fact that my editor could come back and say, wow, I really like the book, but I don't really like who you had be the killer. I don't buy that person as the killer. Can you make someone else the killer? And so I usually, when I'm, when I'm creating my cast of suspects, I know first I start with a situation, like in this one, Meg is at a Renaissance fair, and then I start to figure out what kind of people are going to be there. 
and what are the lines of tension and conflict between them. I try to figure out, okay, if so-and-so were the killer, what would their motive be? How would they have done it? I try to figure it out so that if my editor says, pick someone else, I'm not going to be up a creek. And also, if I can't convince myself that so-and-so could be the killer, how am I going to convince you, the reader, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they're a plausible suspect? So I try to make sure that any one of them, I could pull them forward and say, okay, but he did it, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And makes for a lot more juggling. And they're humorous books, so their motives are not morbid and passionate and deep. Right. Sometimes they're kind of trivial, but don't people do dramatic things for trivial reasons in real life? Mm-hmm. We know that for sure. Yeah. So, anyway. And <laughs> I, I'm looking more for people who are, who are greedy and annoying rather than, I don't think I'll ever have a serial killer because they're not funny. Right. Right. Greedy and annoying. Well, you should have a cast of millions to choose from. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Donna, when everybody picks up a copy of uh, The Falcon Always Wings Twice, and they take a read through it and love it as usual in the series, uh, what, do you, what is your goal? What do you hope they walk away with uh, from either this book or just the series in general? I think there are two things I want to accomplish. One is I want them to have fun. I've always said if you figure out who done it early, but you still had a good time along the way, I've still done my job. Right. Just because it didn't fool you didn't mean I didn't do my job. And the other thing is that I, I like to think of the town in which my books take place, the small, fictitious Virginia town of Carefilly. It's a nice place to live. It has a, an extraordinarily high murder rate uh, <laughs> just because of the. it's unfortunate that Carefilly has a mystery writer writing about it. Otherwise, it would be a very peaceful place. But it's a place that a lot of my readers tell me, especially when they're, when they're going through tough times, either the world is having tough times or they're going through personal tough times. It's a nice place to escape to. Most of the people, with the exception of the odd killer, are nice people who do things for kind of heartwarming reasons. So I hope people, in addition to having fun with the mystery, that they enjoy going back and hanging out with Meg's friends and family in that town, which is, you know, a nicer place to be than some of the places we spend our time. There you go. Yep. I think those are two goals you've definitely, uh, definitely accomplished, and I think they're very worthy goals, so big goes to you. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we're going to come to the end of the show today, and uh, Donna, thanks for coming on the show again. Congratulations on continuing the great series. I'm looking forward to uh, everybody go out and pick up a copy. The latest is The Falcon Always Wings Twice, and if you're a fan, you probably already got it on your list or in your hot little hands ready to go. If it's the first time, read this one and then go back, and, and uh, it'll be a nice little scavenger hunt to dig up all 27 of them and uh, and read through them. I like that. I, that'd, be, that'd be good for me. Well, they <laughs> so, are all available electronically, and I'm very happy they're all finally available in audio. Yeah, there, there are a lot go. of people, especially if they're commuting or they have you have a lot of... Whenever I'm, I'm doing housework, I'm doing a lot more housework nowadays that audiobooks are in my life. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, Sometimes it shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all staying indoors a little bit more, and that, that's oh, yeah. a great way to do it. I, I love the audio books, and uh, I just love the fact also that uh, – thanks for bringing that up because, uh, you know, can you reflect back to – I don't know how many years ago it's been, a handful of years ago when they said print books were going to be a thing of the past and audiobooks for oh, yeah. those. Who would want those? Well, guess what? <laughs> it's all still around. And so whether you like to have that hot little print version in your hand or the digital version or you want the audio book, you've just got a, like a buffet availability oh, yeah. for, for your series. So uh, excited about that. So Donna, congratulations again, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. We'll look forward to the next one in the series, and I uh, look forward to chatting with you uh, somewhere down the road. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, well, we're coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. 
I want to thank the uh, producers and sponsors for making this show possible. If you have any uh, comments, ideas, or people you want to see on the show, you can visit us at PetLifeRadio.com and uh, send us an email. And we'll entertain your comments, answer your questions, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. And while you're there, uh, check out all the other wonderful shows and hosts. It's a cornucopia of great entertainment at PetLife Radio. That's PetLifeRadio.com. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. Put it in a book, an article, a magazine, a blog. Just get it out there. And who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.